Guys, uh, we are at a very interesting spot in 2 Corinthians. Turn to chapter 10. Let me kind of remind you where we've been in our study of 1 and 2 Corinthians. 1 and 2 Corinthians, remember, is actually 2 and 4 Corinthians because Paul wrote at least four letters we know about. The first one we don't have, but Paul refers to it in 1 Corinthians and actually answers some letters or some questions that they had back in a letter to him. Then we are, we're aware there's a third letter because Paul speaks about it in 2 Corinthians, and it was what we know as the harsh letter, the letter that he sent because he was really concerned about their integrity, their orthodoxy, and uh, he later wondered if he even made it too strong. And then 2 Corinthians is written after he gets news from Titus that they have responded favorably to his third letter. So he's very happy. Remember, if you look back at the beginning of 2 Corinthians, uh, he is showing them uh, what they bought into. They bought into the new covenant, not this amalgamated message from these super apostles, the Judaizing message that they were bringing that, you, yeah, you had to believe in Jesus Christ, but you also had to follow a certain Jewish rituals and so on, and other things they taught. And Paul was delighted that the majority of the church had turned back to the true gospel. And he shows in that first part of 2 Corinthians how our weakness actually is the platform for God to demonstrate His strength. Contrary to their previous thought that a, a, a true apostle would be a very strong man, very healthy man, a very eloquent man, and Paul was not so eloquent, and Paul earned his own living because he didn't, didn't want to impose upon them because they were so immature in their faith. And it looked to them as though he was a part-timer, not very strong, not very credible. Paul writes back, you remember in 2 Corinthians we saw the power of the gospel through human weakness, including Paul's weakness, and that's the way it always is. And then you remember in chapters 8 and 9, he, he resumes his request that they gather the offering for the poor Jews, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. This was very important, we, we saw, because Paul, it looks, had uh, somewhat of a deal that these Judaizers would not come into his territory and that he would provide offerings for the poor Jews. It looks kind of like there was a quid pro quo going on there. But at the least, what we know is that Paul was gathering this offering as an international Christian offering. And, and the Christians were the first to do this, to gather an offering from those who had to give those, to those who didn't have, and especially because it was across the Jewish-Gentile line. Gentiles were giving to Jews. Unheard of, but a great demonstration of the gospel. So whenever you have love expressed across human, ethnic, or uh, other boundaries, socioeconomic boundaries, you have a powerful demonstration of the gospel. So Paul was encouraging that offering in chapters 8 and 9. He had already spoken about it in 1 Corinthians 16, but they had lapsed in their collection. He says, now y'all get that together and make it easy for me when I come. Have it all collected and ready so that it's a happy, cheerful, a generous offering. That was in chapters 8 and 9. Now when we come to chapter 10, some scholars actually think that because it's so stern, maybe even harsh appearing, that maybe chapters 10 through 13 is actually the harsh letter, the third letter. And that later on, editors just connected it to the end of 2 Corinthians. And the reason some scholars think that is because the tone really changes. He seems to be all happy and grateful in the first part of 2 Corinthians, and now we're going to see he comes out with all guns blazing. And we're thinking, is this the same guy? I mean, is Paul manic depressive? Or maybe he's off his meds this morning or something? I don't know what the deal is. But uh, so some people really struggle with trying to understand chapters 10 through 13. Now, as we look at it, I want to tell you there, there are two reasons why uh, evangelical scholars don't think that it's an attachment of another letter. It's the same letter. Here's why. Number one, we have thousands of documents, copies, of the New Testament in Greek and some other languages, but particularly in Greek. And whenever there is suspicion that something got moved around by editors, 
you'll at least see that in one family of these copies. In other words, if I connect something, I just decide I'm going to take a third letter and connect it to the fourth one, then all the copies after me will also show that. So you have families of copies that will show where that kind of decision was made. There are no families and there are no copies that don't have chapters 10 through 13. That that, that makes it almost impossible to believe that someone just redacted or edited this end as a, uh, you know, as from a separate letter to make it the same letter. So all the, all the documentary evidence shows no sign of there being two letters. There's one. Secondly, uh, you'll notice in your ESV, the ESV editors call this uh, the rebellious minority. And that's what they are. And Paul refers to them earlier. We looked at that when we were studying early in 2 Corinthians. But this is the minority of the church, and it makes perfect sense for for those of you who have been in church leadership for a number of years. You never lead 100% of the people to believe anything. You never lead 100% of the people to do anything unless a massive revival comes upon the church. And as we've seen in the book of Acts, when a massive revival comes and you've got a rebellious minority like Ananias and Sapphira, they don't last very long under revival. God takes care of them. But in normal, ordinary times, uh, it's always a mixed uh, picture. So what Paul's dealing with in chapters 10 through 13 is this minority that's not yet convinced. Now, if Paul were a mere church politician, he could simply say, well, we got the, we got the majority vote. That's fine. This church will eventually go in this direction because we got the, we got the majority. He may even have had a supermajority. But he's not a mere church politician. He's a pastor. And he's looking at this minority and he's saying, we've got we to gotta work with these guys. We've got to keep massaging this church. We've got to keep trying to infuse health into the church. We've always got to deal with the minority. So you don't write people off in the church. You go after them. And you continue to tr- seek to reason with them and to preach to them and to counsel them and to plead with them. And you'll find words of pleading at the very beginning of chapter 10. So look at the pleading apostle with the rebellious minority that's still questioning his credibility as an apostle. If a guy ever had a reason to write people off, it would be right here. Paul refuses to do that. He goes to them with a pleading heart and he's he's confronting them now. Now they had accused him of being weak. They had accused him of being not so credible and not eloquent. And they said these other people who were preaching heresy, they tell us about their great actions and they show us their wonderful uh, uh, rhetorical skills and oratorical skills, and they boast about the things that they've done. One of the key elements in chapters 10 through 12 is you'll find Paul boasting. He's actually using irony and satire and mockery to say, oh, they boast about this? Well, let me boast about that. And you'll see that he boasts about some of the most ridiculous things uh, in chapters 11 and 12. He says, let me boast. Have any of those people been handed over the wall in Damascus uh, to escape? Well, I got handed over in a basket. Uh, And you're going, (laughs) what's he boasting about? He's making fun of their boasting in human flesh. So dealing with the rebellious minority, Paul is going to use satire, irony, mockery, anything that he can do to win these brothers back. Now let's take a look then at chapter 10. And in this, when Paul is showing what he doesn't have, he doesn't have a lot of money. He doesn't have a a, a lot of good looks. He doesn't have a lot of oratorical skills. He doesn't have a lot of impressive human power. But he is loaded with spiritual power. And he's going to show us what that is. So as you read, we read through chapter 10, look at what Paul is saying he does have that does give him credibility as an apostle. And what's so useful for us is that when we look at this, we'll see what our power is too. And what really works. What really makes a difference if we're dealing with other men? How do we reach them? How do we influence them? I think Paul will show us here and we'll see that we have some of the same gifts that he uh, displayed in chapter 10. Let's look at it then, verse 1. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, 
And by the way, now he's quoting them. Because they're saying, oh, he's so bold when he's away from us. Oh yeah, he can write these really powerful letters. But when he's here, he's a wimp. And Paul's saying, okay, you think I'm a wimp when I'm with you, and I'm strong when I'm writing these epistles when I'm away. And he says, verse 2, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. And once again, in verse 8, that's their boast, their saying about Paul, he boasts too much of his authority. And he doesn't have any of the signs of authority. Doesn't look like an authoritative person, but he keeps telling us he's got authority. Paul's quoting them. And he says, but I use this for building you up and not for destroying you. Verse 9, I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Sound like some senior ministers I know. Uh, Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do in present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Okay, let's look at how Paul presents himself to this rebellious minority who is still questioning his authority as an apostle, just as some would question your authority as a believer. What right do you have to suggest that you're right and I'm wrong? What right do you have to stick your nose into my spiritual business? What right do you have to claim that this is the way that your city ought to operate or your business ought to operate or your nation ought to operate? What right do you have? What authority do you have? People question your authority all the time. And they say, you're not that impressive. You don't have the advanced degrees that these other people have and they're saying the exact opposite. You're saying, what what authority do you have? What right do you have to consider yourself uniquely on target. Well, let's look at what the, how the apostle defends himself. It may give us some hints about how we present ourselves. First of all, in verse 1, we are given the Lord's attitude. We have the Lord's attitude. It starts there. Paul says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you. I'm begging you. I'm urging you. I'm pleading with you. And you remember when we look back in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, Paul says that we are appealing to others, we're pleading to others, just as he is to this rebellious minority. He's pleading with them on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to Him. And we've already looked at this, that in warfare, when you are victorious over the enemy, they're the ones who plead with you for peace. But in this case... 
Christ is the victor. And then He comes and pleads with the vanquished for peace. What grace! So God is over all. He's sovereign. He rules. He's the judge. We're all going to face Him. And He has conquered the evil one by the cross and the resurrection. And then He comes to you, even this morning through this preacher, and pleads with you to be reconciled to Him, to have a friendship with Him, to have peace with Him, to be intimate with Him. And Paul could never forget that he was on the road to Damascus to destroy Christians. And his life was going in a direction that would send him straight to hell forever. And Christ appeared to him and saved him, rescued him. Paul could never get over that. And he wants to imitate the one who saved him. And so here he's imitating him. And Paul is not using just strong arm tactics to win this, this minority. He's pleading with them, I'm sure with tears. But he says here in verse 1, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. You know, when, when uh, I was in the sales business, I learned early on that no matter what a, cu- a customer says to me, even if he insults me, I have no right to insult him back. Now, if I'm on the golf course and he insults me, I can insult him if I want to. Because we're friends playing golf and he makes fun of my backswing, I can make fun of his. But if I'm working for a company whose customer this man is, I must represent the company. He's not my customer. He's my company's customer. So I must treat him as the company wants me to treat him. Now, there's a sense in which when you're dealing with God's people, you must remember with whom you're dealing. These are not your people. These are His people. And therefore, you go to them with the same gentleness and meekness that He goes to His people and went to you. The same gentleness and meekness by which He came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, not on a war horse, but on a meekly donkey. He came meekly as the King. And as we go to the world around us, we must do so too. And one of the great criticisms, as we all know, of Bible-believing people and culture today is that we're arrogant. And we seem to be happy about people going to hell who disagree with us. You won't find that with the Apostle Paul. He pleads with the meekness and the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's always got to be a part of our message. And if someone thinks that means we're weak, let them think it. We know better. Meekness is actual strength. Because meekness is being who you are in the presence of God, nothing more and nothing less. That's what meekness is. It's being a man who is always who he knows he is before God. And we present ourselves to everybody else that way, knowing who we are before God. And Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth, other than Christ. And he was a very strong leader. But he always knew who he was before God, and he presented himself that way to others. Paul's doing the same thing here. He knows who he is before God. And he refuses to climb up on a soapbox and be something other than what he is before God. And he says, we have the Lord's attitude. And uh, here you know, we can see how much he cares about the eternal welfare of everybody in the church, even in those who are creating all kinds of problems. You know, if you're, a, if you're a good doctor, you love your patients. And how often we've heard about various doctors, many in this room, who are just wonderful doctors. They really care for their patients. They go out of their way. They want their patients to be healthy. Well, what about our patients? Our patients are facing eternal destiny of God's wrath unless they are reconciled to Him. And to be good physicians, we must care for our patients too, even if sometimes they're obstreperous and difficult to deal with and don't take their medicine. J.C. Ryle one time said, the most selfish act any man could commit is to go to heaven alone. So you won't find the apostle just thankful that he's going to heaven so everybody else can go to hell. You won't find that in his heart. And a man who knows what he's been rescued from in order to... Be, have the, the doors of heaven open to him, will not have that kind of attitude, but will have the Lord's attitude of pleading with meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now, secondly, we have something else. We have the Lord's arsenal. And boy, what a powerful arsenal it is. Now, Paul says, you accuse us of being in the flesh. And the reason you do, because our flesh looks so weak. And therefore, we don't have any power or authority. He says, it is true that we uh, walk uh, in flesh. In other words, we we have flesh. He he says, if you look here in verse uh, 3, for though we walk in the flesh, that is, we're men, 
We are not waging war according to the flesh. So yes, we're in the, in the flesh and we're in the world, but we're not of the world and we're not of the flesh. And we don't use fleshly weapons. Now what are fleshly weapons? All kinds of things. Intimidation, guilt manipulation, money, prestige, power plays, physical force, emotional manipulation, uh, sex appeal, <laughs> Uh, all kinds of things. Uh, come to church and you'll find somebody in every pew will find a $5 bill under their pew. You know, tricks, gimmicks, fleshly motivations. Uh, there are all kinds of... Military force. There are all kinds of ways to use fleshly weapons. And Paul, you'll find here and elsewhere, regularly renounces all of those. Look, you are going to lean on some power to get the job done. Everybody does. If you want to get a job done, you have to apply power. But in order to exercise gospel power, you have to renounce all other fleshly methodologies. And so many people are trying to mix them. Well, let's just use a little good marketing technique, just a little fear and guilt manipulation, and mix that in with the gospel. No, it won't work. You've just lost your gospel. You've got to be rigorous in renouncing and repudiating fleshly methods to try to accomplish spiritual ends. And it comes true, doesn't it, especially with your children? You know? Son, you're going to stay here tonight and talk to Jesus and become a Christian or you can't go out on that date. You know? That would be a pretty, pretty severe example. But how, how true it is that we try to manipulate our kids into the kingdom. I think we can set certain boundaries. We can, if they're under our roof, we can insist they go to church with us and so on. But, but there has to be a freedom given so that the power that's being exercised in the people that we love is a spiritual power and that we simply become the means of God working spiritually in that person's heart. Parents need to learn to pastor the hearts of their kids, the hearts. And the heart is motivated by spiritual things. And if we go trying to motivate by temporal things, we're removing the influence of the gospel. So Paul says we do not use fleshly means like the super apostles are using. They're trying to overwhelm you with their oratory, overwhelm you with their, their boast of human power and all the rest. He says we don't do that. But what do we have? Verses 4 through 6. Look in verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have... It says diving power, <laughs> divine power, but have divine power, uh, verse 4. So he says the weapons that, that we have are not the weapons that others use in their philosophical battles or in their military battles, but we have divine power with the weapons that we have. And, of course, you find a parallel here with Ephesians 6. Those of you who are members of 2nd, of course, we're studying Ephesians 6, uh, spiritual warfare, of these Sunday mornings. But you'll see the same parallel there. Paul says that we fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and authorities in high places. So here he says we have spiritual weapons. Well, what do these weapons do? First of all, they destroy strongholds. Now, Paul's using very military language here. But it's spiritual military action. He's talking about taking over a fortress. So Paul, the apostle, is saying this is like invading a stronghold, a fortress, and we're going to destroy the whole thing. So, oh boy, this, this should be interesting. A lot of fireworks here. I wonder how Paul's going to do that. Destroy this pagan uh, stronghold or destroy this rebellious stronghold in the church? Boy, let's watch him do that. How's he going to do it? Well, we'll see. But he says the weapons that we use actually bring down the fortresses of alien thought forms and alien religious affections. Secondly, he says, the weapons that we use destroy arguments and every lofty opinion or every high thing raised up, every tower raised up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So look at this. He's invading the fortress and he's taking captives. And he says, our spiritual weapons actually work. We destroy the strongholds. We destroy all the arguments and all the high towers that are lifted up, and we end up taking captives. Well, what does he mean here? 
Well, what he means, of course, is that it's the, it's the weapon of the Word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, bathed in prayer, delivered humbly and meekly. It has tremendous power. Yes, it looks weak in the world. Yes, sometimes it's humiliating because people will make fun of us. But actually, this is what changes the world and demolishes the strongholds of our resistance. Think about your own resistance. When you are building a little stronghold, you may have been a member of the church, but you are building a little stronghold, building your own kingdom, actually using the church and other things within the church to advance your own kingdom agenda. Anybody here ever done that? No show of hands. But just think about what tore down that stronghold in your case. Was it someone who tried to out-manipulate you? To, to outplay you at your own game? No. It was that gentle and humble delivery of the powerful Word of God that went straight to your heart and convicted you and obliterated your stronghold. Am I not right? Every time you've done something like that, was it not the Word of God that came gently and humbly to you, but very powerfully and convicted your heart? If you think about your own case, your own strongholds that you set up, and how they got destroyed, was it not through love and through the truth that this happened to you? And Paul is saying, that's what I want to do. I want to be effective. And therefore, I'll humble myself, and I'll take on forms of human weakness in order to have spiritual strength. And that's the choice you have to make. Do you want to be strong in this world in which you're going to be weak spiritually? Or would you prefer to have powerful spiritual weapons and appear to be weak in the world? There's a choice to be made. Paul made the latter choice and a better choice. And it destroys arguments. You know, if you're argumentative, does anybody know anybody like that? If you're argumentative, uh, you just, you'd look forward to a good argument. And someone who's argumentative, I don't care whether they're right or they're wrong, they can win every argument. And the reason is, a fool, fool can ask more questions than a wise man can possibly answer and can create more diversions and more excuses. I mean, just look at some of the court cases. They go on for months and months and months. People are raising this objection and filing this motion and making this argument, and poor old judge, you know, he can never bring it to a conclusion because people can go on and on and on. But what demolishes arguments? The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The loving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Word of God. And Paul says, with that, we demolish all kinds of arguments and strongholds and people who set up defenses against the gospel in their own lives. And then, of course, those defenses are also used to keep their own children and grandchildren from knowing the gospel. But we destroy arguments. If you think we're weak, look at the arguments we destroy. Look at the strongholds we take. It's through the meekness and weakness that you despise that God is delivering His message. We have powerful spiritual weapons. We have the Lord's arsenal. And look what he says in verse 6. Not only do we destroy arguments, but we punish disobedience. You think that I'm afraid to confront you? That all I can do is write strong letters? Please don't make me demonstrate that I can be strong in, in person, he's saying. Please don't do that to me. Don't do this to yourselves. Because there is such a thing as church discipline, and if you force our hand, we will exercise such. That's what he's talking about. He says, once you get your obedience in order, look at verse 6, once you get your obedience in order, in other words, the majority is on track, and the elders are in place, and they understand the truth, and are going to exercise church discipline now, you who are in the rebellious minority, please repent now. Don't think that we're weak because now that the church has swung to an orthodox position, then you will be disciplined for this. Please don't force this on us. So Paul is saying what looks, looks weak to you is actually very strong. And you say, you know, it's like, was it Stalin who said, how many divisions does Pope, the Pope have? You know, because he was being told, well, the Pope, you know, is going to stir up trouble for, you know, the Soviet Union and, you know, in Europe, and he says, how many divisions does the Pope have? You know, none. Well, <clears throat> let's see, what happened to Stalin? Yeah, well, anyway, uh, here's the point. You don't have any divisions. You don't need them. You know why? Because your God is the God of Israel. He is the God of the armies of Israel. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the Lord of divisions. And He can conquer wherever He pleases. And He happens to be your God and your Savior and the captain of your soul. So you don't need human divisions. 
You see them as weak. That's the real mystery. That what others see as strength, you see as weakness. It cannot last. It's all passing away and you know it. You've got the secret to the universe. So, you're basically saying that, look, when the Word of God is delivered, meekly and humbly, there's a power to it. It convicts hearts. It demolishes arguments. And ultimately, it disciplines the church. And you may say, well, what can the, what can the church do? They can't send anybody to prison. They can't fine anybody. They can't force anybody. No, of course not. We have something much stronger than that. We have the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And God works in His own people through the Word, uh, uh, humbly administered by leaders in the church. And Paul is saying, don't think that's weak. It'll demolish strongholds. So Paul is demonstrating here the Lord's arsenal and demonstrating his faith in that arsenal. Gentlemen, what about your faith? Are you trusting the Lord's arsenal? Are you trusting some other worldly, fleshly methodology to get the work of the kingdom done? Now look at verse 7, and you'll see here that we have the Lord's authenticity. Why do we need that? Well, because others think you're not authentic. Why? Because you're weak and poor. You're not famous and powerful and rich like other people. And this Christian faith has just downright ruined you. I told you it was going to happen to you. Yeah, you start giving to the poor and you start giving to the church and you start giving your time to do this, that, and the other. Look at your business. It's just very mediocre. Look at you. All this you get. And so how can it be authentic? If you're the Lord's servant, if you're royalty, ought ought you not look like royalty? And Paul says... We have the Lord's authenticity. And you all think you're Christians because you have all you want. And they said that in 1 Corinthians. Remember, Paul spoke to that. Oh, so you're so wealthy. He said, I just got one question for you. If if being a Christian means you're always wealthy and happy and everything goes well for you, what's wrong with us apostles? We're at the end of the parade like a bunch of prisoners, the scum of the earth. And we're completely stripped down, don't have anything. Could you please explain that to me? Why the apostles are not looking like kings. You say you're kings. Well, Paul says here, look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. What are the marks of Christ? Well, I mentioned here Acts chapter 4, verse 13, when Peter and John were before the Sanhedrin. And you know what they, they said? These men are unlearned. They, they're, not, they're not trained in the university. We haven't trained them. But... Luke says they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So there's a mark on you because you're with Jesus. You have Jesus' marks on you. Your character is like His character. And it's inevitably a sign of your belonging to Him. That's the sign you want. If you go looking for other insignia, you're going to miss the real insignia. If you're looking for stripes on your arm or kudos, diplomas on your wall for your insignia. You're going to miss the real insignia. The real insignia is the life of Christ within you. I'll never forget, gosh, uh, what would this be, 1991, uh, just you know, after the Berlin Wall had come down and, and we were just being allowed to go into uh, Soviet Russia and a uh, Soviet Union. And I remember going into a little village in western Ukraine And I believe it was the first time most of these people had ever met an American, and certainly an American Christian. And and I remember going with a friend of mine into a little village where there had been a little church there that was embattled for many years, for 70 years. Sounds kind of biblical, you know. For 70 years, they had had a little building that some Canadian evangelicals had provided the money for 70 years before that. And the Cossacks, the, the, the Russians, had taken the property from them and made it a city hall. So uh, in these little villages, they were very interested to meet Americans and wanted to be very accommodating. So when we got the story in this little town called Pete Hajika, you'd never know of it, we uh, went to the mayor and asked for an audience with him. And he was very glad to see us and had his you know, deputies there and welcomed us. And we said... Uh, so nice to meet you. We're enjoying your town, your village. We've gotten to know some people here. And we've become aware of something that we would like to ask if you might be able to, to uh, rectify. Oh, well, what would that be? 
Well, we have some friends who used to own a church building about 70 years ago, given to them by some of our friends in Canada. And uh, we don't know why, but apparently the government chose to take their building over. We're just wondering, would you please give it back to us? And they did. <laughs> but here's, here's what they said. They said, who are the people you represent? We said, well, it's a little church. Just a few people, just, just 60, 70 people. And the mayor said, yeah, I know those people. He said, you know, they're good people. I have a lot of problems in this little town. I've got to arrest people for drunkenness. We have people who beat people up. and We've got people who steal things. He said, those people don't ever do any of that stuff. And I said, well, you know, it's interesting you should say that. Because what we've found in our experience is that just by simple faith in Jesus Christ, there's a huge discipline that enters your life because you're actually in love with Jesus Christ. That's a very interesting theory there, Reverend. But it was true, even in the most remote place, the most remote place, this little huddled group of embattled believers living out the Christian life, and the rest of the town couldn't help but notice it. That's your insignia, gentlemen. Be sure you've got it. Be sure that in the most remote places in your business, when you're traveling, visiting some clients, when you're dealing with your patients, when you're dealing with your law clients, even when you're dealing with your opponent in the court, be sure that they see the insignia of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. Paul says, you may think you belong to Christ. Maybe you do, but I'm telling you what, I know I belong to Christ, and here's how I know, and here's how they should know. We have the Lord's authenticity. It makes all the difference in the world. This is the reason that we do our ministry, whatever it is, in the fishbowl. I remember asking one time an experienced preacher when I was a young preacher, I said, What's, you know, what would you do differently if you were to go back 30 years and preach again as a young man? Because he's about 30 years my senior. And I remember he said to me, uh, he said, you know, uh, this was in the days of overhead transparencies, like we used to use an amen. He says, I'd probably use an overhead transparency because, you know, if you look on the news, everybody's got a graphic. And people remember more of what they see rather than what they hear. So if I were preaching as a young man again, I'd probably use graphics. And uh, respectfully, I hope, I said, you know, it seems to me uh, that there's already a graphic in preaching. And he said, what's that, the Bible? I said, no, it's the preacher. The preacher's the graphic. In other words, there's, there has to, if you're teaching Sunday school, you're leading your small group, you're trying to influence your children, they, they want to know if you really believe what you're saying. There's one simple way to find out. Are you doing it? And the closer they get to you, like in a family, they know for sure whether you're doing it. They know for sure whether you believe it. So you actually discipline and lead your family with your own behavior because by the time they're three, they see beyond your words. They know what you really care about. They can see it in your life. So you basically live a life and you preach out of that life. That's what the apostle's doing. He says, I know I'm Christ's. I know I know the gospel because I know Him. So why don't you listen to me and you can know Him too. That's the way gospel ministry works in your workplaces and with your friends and family. Now, fourthly, we have to race along here. Verses 8 through 11, we have the Lord's authority. He says, even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave... So the source of our authority is God himself. I think I told you the story. One day, D.L. Moody was going through the park in Chicago. He saw a man who obviously had spent the night on the bench, you know, probably drunk the night before. And, and Moody just stops, sits down the other end of the bench, and he just says, my friend, do you know Jesus? And the man kind of came to him and he looked, looked at Mr. Moody and he said, sir, that's none of your business. And D.L. Moody said, well, let me introduce myself. My name's D.L. Moody. And the man said, oh, that is your business. <laughs> Does everybody know this is your business? You know, it begins with how you see yourself. If you think you're an alien and a stranger, if you think you're an outsider, if you think you have no authority, then why should anybody else think you have any authority? But if you know by virtue of being in Christ and being given His Word and His Gospel and His Spirit that He has made you His messenger 
And of course, that has to be nuanced. It has to be humble and gentle. It has to be well-timed. It has to be loving and kind. But do you realize He's made you His agent? If you know you're His ambassador, His agent, then you know what? Pretty soon everybody else gets the idea too. Oh, that is your business. That is your chief agenda. And you, first of all, must know your own authority before anybody else is going to recognize it. And then notice the purpose of our authority is to edify other people. It's not to put ourselves over people. It's not to destroy people. It's not to embarrass people. It's not to put them on the hot seat. It's not to humiliate them. It's not to show them that you're more spiritual or more knowledgeable than they are. It's to help them. It's to serve them. It's to edify them. And Paul was constantly putting himself under people in order to help them. Uh, the great Puritan Cotton Mather, American Puritan, was teaching some young ministers uh, on things like this one day, and here's what he said to them. He said, I hope that the saving or the enlightening and edifying of one soul at any time will be a matter of more joy to you than if all the wealth of Ophir should flow, flow in upon you. May it be your desire to see one soul be edified enlightened, converted. And may that be the highest joy to you more than all the investments you could possibly make in this world. That's what Paul could honestly say. The purpose of his authority was not to advance his own well-being, but rather to advance their well-being. Thirdly, the exercise of our authority must be consistent. He says, I don't want to appear to be frightening you with my letters and then be a wimp when I'm in, with you in present. No, Paul is saying, whatever authority I have and whatever Christian character I have, it's going to be exercised in letters and in person. It's going to be exercised in public and in private. It's going to be exercised before the weak and before the strong. And gentlemen, whatever you believe and whatever your moral convictions are and whatever your strategy is to reach the world for Christ, it must be consistent no matter who the person is. God's no respecter of human beings and you mustn't be either. And so often in our church lives, in our spiritual lives, in our parachurch lives, we're giving undue deference to those who have worldly weapons, who have money or who have influence, who have reputations. Now certainly we want to defer to people who have wisdom and who can guide us, who are smarter than we are, more spiritually uh, rooted than we are, we always are giving deference. But when we give deference because of someone's worldly power, we're showing that we don't really believe in spiritual power after all. And Paul says, my life is going to be consistent. You'll get the same thing from me personally that you will in public. you get the same thing from my letters that you get from me in person. you get the same thing from me if you put a rich crowd in front of me or if you put a poor crowd in front of me. We're going to be consistent because why? We believe in the transcendent realities of a glorified God. So, we exercise our authority consistently because it trumps all human authority after all. Now, lastly, look at verses 12 through 18. And here we have something else. We have the Lord's approval. Just recently, our pastors were praying together and, you know, we, we share different things about our families and things to be prayed for and about the things that we struggle with and Often, you know, we'll just admit that, you know, we just are too hungry for everybody's approval. And pastors, I don't know about you, but pastors often have this weakness. Uh, we love people. We like people to love us. And we're very tempted to do things or to say things that will put us in approval with other people. It's, it's a wicked, uh, sometimes subtle, sometimes blatant, but usually subtle temptation and sin. And it throws the gospel off. If I'm trying to please you, then I may shave off some truth of the gospel that I think might be offensive to you or some ethical norm that you're not you know, willing to deal with and I might just withhold that from you because I don't want to be unpopular in your view. And Paul says, these super apostles that you think are so hot, he said they're all comparing themselves with each other. They're constantly commending themselves to you. They're constantly looking for your approval. They want to be popular. They want you to pay them. They're looking for themselves. And he said the real servant of the Lord is one who knows where to get his approval. And gentlemen, you've got to be this kind of man. You've got to cultivate this. 
This is the reason it's so important for you to hear over and over again how much the Lord loves you. And to hear over and over again how powerful He is. So that the sovereign, powerful Lord who rules the universe as the judge of all happens to have deep fatherly affection for you. Now let me just ask you something. If that is true, who else really matter, Who else's opinion really matters to you? Who else's opinion could possibly compare with that? And you've got to cultivate this in your mind. This is what the apostle constantly did. Think about it. He was constantly getting disapproval. All the time from the Roman authorities, from the synagogue authorities, and now from church people, constantly getting disapproval. How is he going to minister and love people who are throwing him disapproval all the time unless there's someone who's constantly flooding his soul with approval? I approve of you. I love you. I value you. You're mine. I'll never let you go. That's the reason you find these things suffused through the apostles' epistles. He's preaching to himself. He's learned these lessons. He's had to because he had nothing else to hang on to. Sometimes we operate under the delusion that we actually have something else to hang on to. That we can actually enjoy this life and get through it if we just have everybody like us pretty well. Paul had the blessing of being disabused of that idea early in his life. And I suggest we learn from him. Because whatever it is you think you're going to gain from men's approval, it's gone. It's, it's, you're aging as we sit here this morning. It's passing away before your very eyes. And the Apostle Paul says, we must not compare ourselves. We dare not uh, classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. I remember uh, years ago, um, I was in another city, not in this state, and I was talking with a man who had several years of experience in pastoring, and here's how blunt it was in our conversation. He actually said to me, you know, Reverend so-and-so in this same city? I said, yes. I don't know how he got to be pastor of that large church. Yeah, he, he really doesn't have that much on the ball. He's not all that smart. And really what he was saying is, I should be pastor of that church because I'm smart and more clever than this person. I was sort of stunned with the... I mean, you know, every once in a while pastors have those thoughts, but usually we, we wouldn't say them in public, you know. Uh, but he actually said it to me. And I was so stunned. I, I didn't know quite. I was sort of speechless. Uh, and I was a young man at the time, too. About six months later, I was in a little group with the other man. And do you know what he said? He said, you know, I'm pastoring a church that's way beyond my ability. I don't know how in the world I got here. And I don't even know what I'm doing. And I just pray God will be merciful to me. <laughs> there, there's the comparison we're talking about. When you look at worldly comparisons, oh yes, you can make all kinds of reasons why that jerk should not have that much money that you've invested far better than he has. Or you've been a much better physician than this guy. Why would he have, be in charge of the department? You know? Or you can say, the Lord is the only one worthy of anything and why he's put me in a position of any influence at all, I have no idea. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He's saying we must not compare ourselves. And you remember when Jesus was restoring Peter in John 21, how John said, what about him? And, uh, or vice versa. And Jesus said, don't worry about him, just take care of yourselves. Which leads us to the next point, stay in your lane. We must not commend ourselves. And that means stay in your lane. Do your work. You say, well, I, you know, I really think that my Sunday school class ought to be bigger. I'm a better teacher than this. I'm teaching six-year-olds. I think I really need to be teaching 40-year-olds because I have something to offer all these adults. Gentlemen, wherever you are, take the ones you have. That's your providentially assigned area of ministry. And be faithful. Remember when... Uh, Jesus tells the parable of the guy who gets five talents, comes back with ten, and then a guy who's given two talents, he comes back with four. The same message is given to both those men. Well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your master's happiness. It's not how much you earn, how many souls you save. It is were you faithful with the assignment he gave you. That's all that matters. 
And if He wants to give you a bigger assignment, fine. You take it on under His providence. But you take what He gives you. And if it's two people in the six-year-old class, love those people and minister the Gospel to them faithfully. So we stay in our lane. Secondly, we boast only in the Lord. The reason, verse 17, that we don't boast about ourselves or write fancy resumes and spread them around is because we're not boasting in ourselves. We're boasting in the Lord alone. And when you boast in yourself and your own fleshly attainments or your own worldly skills, when you really delight yourself in that, you are diminishing the boast that solely belongs to the Lord. David says over and over again, I will boast in the Lord. And Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, may I never boast about anything except the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ through which the world is crucified to me and I to the world. So you can only boast about one thing. Who's it going to be? And Paul says, I made that choice. And therefore, I'm not going to boast I'm not going to commend myself in my flesh like these other men do. I'm not going to try to impress you with worldly systems. And that's the reason that he makes such fun of their boasting as we'll see in the next chapter. Then lastly, verse 18. Look to the Lord alone for your approval. I do believe that this is one of the biggest enemies of Christian effectiveness among men is that we're seeking others' approval. If, if I put out a poll, an Amen Bible study, and you were honest, and I, I was asking you this question, what is the greatest reason that you prefer not to evangelize or to share the gospel with those around you? You'd say just what I say, a fear of rejection. What's that? Seeking the approval of men. It's, it's, it's the greatest enemy to the effectiveness of the church in reaching Memphis and in reaching our region in reaching our country, in reaching the world, is that we want people to like us. And Paul just simply closes out by saying, it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this marvelous chapter of the Bible. Thank you for the life that you gave the Apostle Paul by suffusing his life with your Holy Spirit and a love for Jesus Christ. Thank you for all of the beautiful insignia of a Christian life in his life. And yet he is still imperfect. He, too, is a sinner like ourselves. We lift up our eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, Jesus, may we know this morning how much you love us. May we be bathed in the approval that you give us as your brothers. And would we now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, go out as men who are approved of God and freely share your love for other men even if they're behind a fortress, even if they have a veritable army defending them, Lord, enable us to trust the powerful spiritual weapons you've given us to destroy strongholds, to take captive every thought as a prisoner to the Lord Jesus Christ, who then sets them free. Enable us to be your men today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.